I am delighted to continue our study in the Psalms of Ascents. If you're able, please open your Bibles to Psalm 123. The Psalms of Ascents, those are those, those 15 psalms, that collection coming after the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, beginning with Psalm 120, going through Psalm 134. They are, they are collected by God's sovereign purpose in our Bibles, and we have worked our way through three of them. And today we consider the fourth of 15, Psalm 123. The topic for today's sermon and the topic of this psalm is trust in suffering. And I, what I would hope that we would all come away with is that we are to not only trust the Lord in all things, but especially to trust the Lord in our affliction. For that is the time when it is most difficult according to our flesh to trust the Lord. Today's sermon is going to be broken up into three parts. Part number one, trust, verse one. Part number two, trust of a servant, verse two. And part three, trust of a suffering servant, verses three and four. So we have kind of a um, cascading structure here. Trust, trust of a servant, and trust of a suffering servant. With your Bibles open to Psalm 123, follow along with me as I read the Word of God. Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Let us ask the Lord to help us now as we feed on his word. Lord in heaven, we lift up our eyes to you now, you who is enthroned in the heavens. Grant us mercy and all good things from your throne this morning as we feed on the word that you have prepared for us this morning. We ask that you would help us in Jesus' precious name, our Lord and our Savior, and we all say, Amen. Well, as a lover of God and the things of God, have you ever experienced the scorn of the world? The longer you live as a Christian in this world, the more likely it is that examples will flood your mind when you are asked a question like that. We live in a time and a place where, God, where a God-hating culture that is blinded by the prince of the power of the air is the norm. Sometimes this scorn is subtle, is it not? Sometimes this scorn is loud and obnoxious, but scorn there is. Be not mistaken. Some, no doubt, would say to that statement, I don't see it. While others would declare, that's nonsense. 
My prayer for the first is that they are just numbered by those who are numbed by the poison, while I deeply fear for the soul of the second. One theologian observed, the world is as angry and disrespectful and full of raw hatred for Christ as it has ever been. And this is precisely the way Jesus himself said it would be. So have you ever received worldly scorn for the things of God? No doubt when you bring up things like ultimate realities in conversation, sin, heaven, hell, those are certainly categories that will bring upon worldly scorn to an unbelieving world. Or what if you brought up seven-day creationism, that the world made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in seven literal days? What if you defended biblical marriage as defined by Scripture as between one man and one woman? What if you talked about God honoring purity in thought and in act and in speech? Or how about abortion, as it truly is, murder of a human life? Or the most obnoxious of them all, Jesus is Lord. Matthew 10.22, Jesus said very clearly to us who believe, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Or how about 1 John 3.13, where the apostle whom Jesus loved said to us, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Yes, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you, brothers and sisters. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you. Have you ever been excluded? for following Christ. And they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. How opposite that is to our fleshly thinking. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Speaking of the Jews. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, this is a theme that is repeated over and over in the Gospels, but not just in the Gospels. Worldly scorn is nothing new for the children of God. And today's psalm, has that fire burning in the background. And that fire, as we have discussed now, is still burning today. Thankfully, we have the same God as the psalmist of Psalm 123. And by the end of his song, I pray that you will not be singing a song of lament, but a song of thanksgiving. For as Jesus says, when you are reviled for the name of the Son of Man, rejoice. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Praise be to God. Let us look at this psalm together, shall we? Part 1, trust. Verse 1. To whom shall we commit our care, brothers and sisters? To whom shall we commit our care? 
Verse 1, the psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. I want to talk a moment about the nature of Hebrew poetry. We have poetry in in our uh, culture, in in our uh, mode of singing songs, and we know usually it's poetry because words rhyme. When we have lines that weren't that, uh, lines that rhyme, we say, "Ah, that's a song," or "That's poetry." But to the Hebrew mind, poetry isn't necessarily the rhyming of words, but the repeating of thoughts and the further unpacking of thoughts. The Hebraist style of repeating ideas and concepts and further unpacking what was said before. And I believe we have something of this evidenced in this opening line. Think of verse 1 in two parts, part A and part B. To you I lift up my eyes, part 1. Part 2, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Here we have a parallel thought with part B giving further explanation to part A. Here's some observations. The psalmist begins with saying, to you. The meaning of who this you is becomes clear only once we begin to ascend and climb the ladder of this psalm. Who is this you? It is the one to whom the psalmist lifts up his eyes. In the next verse, we will hear that it is the Lord our God. And what does this nature of lifting up my eyes communicate? Well, we talked about this in some previous Uh, psalms of a sense that although this may be a physical lifting up of the eyes we learned that this is often a metaphor which means to pray it means to pray it is true that even in the gospels we see jesus lifting his eyes up to heaven so he's physically lifting up his eyes but it's in the act of prayer And so the idea of lifting up your eyes is metaphorical oftentimes in the psalms of praying So that's what is being communicated in verse 1. To you, I lift up my eyes. It's saying, to you, I pray. To you, I make supplication. But who is the you? This is not simply a plea to a king. It could be that in a time of need, a citizen of a country would look to the king. Oh, you, oh king, I look for help. But this is not a simple plea to a king. This is a plea to a heavenly king. The king of kings. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. What does this communicate? Well, first of all, it communicates sovereignty. This king, this one who is enthroned in the heavens. He's not just in the heavens. He's enthroned in the heavens. Communicating sovereignty. This is the one who the psalmist is praying to. A sovereign king. And it also communicates serenity. This is not a king who himself is mixed up in the cares of the world, who is distressed at what he sees around him. This is a king who is in complete serenity. He's a king in the heavens. Oh, how we need a king like that. Imagine going to an earthly king pleading help and mercy. And the king says, be gone. I have enough cares of my own. 
I can't even keep my own kingdom together. And now you, a citizen of my kingdom, is pleading to me for individual help? Away. Reminds me of Esther, who could only go into the throne of the king if he dipped his rod and she could touch his scepter. Now this king is enthroned in the heavens. He's sovereign and he's in serenity. It communicates a heart of the psalmist that is rightly ordered, does it not? Is your heart ordered this way? Do you seek the help of the sovereign king who is enthroned in the heavens in your time of need? Simply put, this psalm begins with declaring that the only absolute, hear me, the only absolute trust that is to be had in our times of need is to be found in the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Amen? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. What does that communicate? It dawned on me one day that it's saying that he is the king of the other kings. He is the Lord of the other lords. There are many kings in this world. There are many lords in this world. But our God is the king of those kings and the Lord of those lords. It is he and he alone who is not subject to the ebb and flow of time, circumstances, the shifting shadows of passion and creaturely cares. We don't need a king like that. We actually, we have many kings like that. We don't need our God to be a king like that. He is precisely the one who the psalmist trusts and calls upon. But it wasn't only the psalmist or the faithful in general, but our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Don't fall into the trap that, well, if the Lord knows my every need, I don't need to pray. And don't fall into the trap thinking that even though our Lord was the God-man, he didn't need to pray for as God he didn't need to pray but as man he did and Christ is doing something for us in our place as man and as God no doubt so to whom shall we commit our care if it's not clear let me show you who we should not or what we should not commit our care to. Because, brothers and sisters, as we have family members who are not saved, as we have friends who are not saved, as we have co-workers who are not saved, we see them placing their care in other things than the one true and living God. Such as money. Money. Many in this world place their care in money. Listen to Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, according to our flesh, there's often times where we trust money, where we feel like, oh, if it wasn't for my bank account, I would be in really bad shape. And there is a temporal wisdom to that, where we want to be able to provide for our families. We want to be able to feed them and clothe them and care for ourselves and care for those around us and give to the church. We do these things through temporal means. 
But again, this is temporal means that comes to us from the Lord, and we ought not place our ultimate care in the hands of money. Many in this world do. Many, if not most. Let's go to something that seems a little more wise according to the world. Well, I don't place my trust in money. I place my trust in my family. Again, there is a noble attitude behind that. Families are designed for a place of trust and care and nurture and fellowship and community. But I'm talking about ultimate care. This is where the words of Jesus are shocking, especially to the outside world. Listen, if anyone comes to me, says Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are shocking and polarizing words, especially to those outside the church. Only we in the church understand what is being said. Not that we shouldn't love our mother and father and brothers and sisters and family and care for them and that we should support one another. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you cannot have allegiance to them and commit your care to them more than you commit your care to me. Again, another shocking claim of divinity. Who does this Jesus think he is? To say to you, unless you love me more than your mother and your father, you cannot be my disciple? What a high bar to be Jesus' disciple. But those of us who trust Jesus, not just as man, but as Lord, as God, as Christ, as we sang this morning, as Christ, my Savior and my God, understand, of course we can't have a greater allegiance to our family than to God. Because listen to the next line. It isn't just money and family that people trust in, because you know what? There are those, and maybe you are among them, where there's a falling out in your family. Where you say, well, I'm, I'm not in danger of trusting my family. Certainly there are many unbelievers who have fallen out of relations with their family and have very little to do with them. And who do they trust in? Their friends. If it's not money, if it's not family, well, then how about my friends? My friends, I have a deeper bond with my friends than I do my own family, many would say. But listen to the psalmist. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who exalts himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. Yes, brothers and sisters, it could very well be that money will fail us in this world. Family will fail us in this world. Friends will fail us in this world. But God never will. That is why he is the one to whom we shall commit our ultimate care. And the one to whom the psalmist is committing his ultimate care. The only wise answer to the question of whom we should place and commit our care is the one to whom this verse points. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Are you with me? 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen. But what does this trust look like, practically speaking? That brings us to the next verse in the psalm. Let's look at verse 2 together. We're moving from trust now to trust of a servant, the picture of committing our care. We've now identified who we ought to commit our care to. Now we're going to look at a picture of what committing our care to him looks like. Read verse 2 along with me. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. We made observations in previous psalms about speakers, remember? Prospological exegesis, identifying speakers. Well, did you notice something that just changed from verse 1 to verse 2? The language changes from I to our. Now, I'm not going to unpack that right now, but it's going to come up later in this psalm. I always want you to recognize, and when you read these psalms, I want you to recognize the person who's speaking and how it changes. It went from, a, from I, lift my eyes, to our eyes, look to the Lord, our God. I, I would venture to say to you, brothers and sisters, there's, there's meaning there, and there's a purpose for that. But I want to look first to this idea of a servant, this picture of a servant committing their care to a master and a maid to the hand of her mistress. Because in, in some ways, in many ways actually, this is a picture of what it looks like for us to trust as a servant, the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Listen to what one commentator says. In ancient times, a slave would stand quietly, unobtrusively across the room, keeping a constant eye on their master's hand. The master would, would direct his servants with subtle hand gestures, and at the slightest sign from him, they would do his bidding. The psalmist looks to the heaven in the same fashion. The imagery is rich with meaning. It speaks of patience. The servant waits patiently for his master's direction. He knows it is not his role to tell the master what is to be done, but vice versa. The master is to tell the servant or the slave what is to be done. This speaks to our posture as slaves of Christ. We're given rich language in the Psalms of lament where we can say things in prayer that we might feel ashamed to say otherwise. We can pray things in the Psalms that we would feel we would not have the right to pray. And so therefore God prays it with us in his word. Use the Psalms that way. But in this Psalm, there is something being taught of a patience on behalf of the slave. Where it says, behold, look to this. The eyes of a servant's look to the hands of their master. I think it's a beautiful picture of us waiting, waiting on the Lord, waiting for his hand to move as a slave would wait for the hand of their master. It's the posture of a servant. 
This really fills out what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 when he said to the disciples, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say this, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. What is Jesus unpacking? He's unpacking Psalm 123. Behold, the eyes of the servant look to the hands of the master as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. This is a posture of a slave. We have this posture in the Lord's Prayer. Remember with me the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That is the posture of a slave praying to the master to feed me. This is what Jesus brings up in Luke 17 about eating and drinking and waiting for the master to feed you. And so we ask the master this in the Lord's Prayer. But we also ask the master to deliver us from the evil one. And that is also the posture of a slave under a master, which will come up in the next verse. But let me ask you this question. How is your obedience to the master? And here's the good news. That was law. Here's gospel. Our obedience does not earn us our standing before the master. Amen. There are many pulpits who would say it does, if not directly, then inadvertently. And they would say something like this, how is your obedience to the master? Do you not want to be like the psalmist? Do you not want to be obedient to the Lord who's given you everything? And the weight gets put on your back and it keeps increasing. The reality is, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as slaves of Christ, you want to obey the Lord, do you not? You don't need the burden of the law to stoke the flame of your desire to love him. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Which means you will want to obey me. You will seek to obey me. As you're sitting here now listening to what I'm saying, you're saying, oh, I do want to obey him but I fall utterly short. And when you do obey, for God is good, and as he works in us to conform us into the image of Christ, we ought to be and do obey him more and more because we are being sanctified more and more. And here's the danger, brothers and sisters. Once you start to be conformed more into the image of Christ and God is pleased to show forth that fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can now start to stand up a little straighter. You can now start to be a little prideful. You can start to look at others around you who aren't maybe doing the things that you're doing and start to grumble about them. But what did Jesus teach us? In Luke 17, so you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants, slaves. 
We have only done that which we ought to have done. There is no reward for us in keeping the covenant of works. The only reward is the reward offered now in the covenant of grace. And you, brothers and sisters, did not earn that. Jesus did. For you. Praise the Lord. Because again, if we ask how you're doing with obedience, if we ask, how are your works working out? Then we come to the truth. What does the Lord require anyways? It's not just a good enough grade to pass the class. It's perfect obedience. Write this down. Circle this in your Bibles. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Because we're believing in the one who has earned it for us. Amen. But I want to move on to seeking deliverance because the trust of a servant just doesn't look to the hand of the master for food and for care, but also for protection. And that is what this next section is about. Trust of a servant to trust of a suffering servant. We need protection because we are suffering in this world. Listen to verse 3. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. This is the way of committing our care. We talked about who we should commit our care to. We had a picture of what committing our care to our master looks like. And now we're looking at the way of committing our care to our master. When a slave would oftentimes leave the presence of his master, if that slave came upon anybody who did not like his master, oftentimes that slave would be on the receiving end of the ridicule and the scorn which was, which was aimed at his master. Where a slave would come back to his master beaten, abused, physically, if not just filled up with contempt spiritually. What a picture of us being abused in this world and going back to our master. And why are we abused? Because the world is trying to abuse him. So as a master would have someone who represents, him, re represents them in his slave, so we represent our Lord. But again, here I want to really focus in on this change of language from I in verse 1 to our in verse 2. And now in verse 3, we have again us. Went from I to our to us. 
the language changes. And what is this signal? It signals radical solidarity with the suffering servant. Radical solidarity with the suffering servant. This idea of solidarity simply means that someone is acting on your behalf. And you are acting in some ways on their behalf. We know this in the sense of what the word mediator means. There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, what is a mediator? Someone who acts on behalf of another person. And so with solidarity, what is communicated is that there is a connection, an intimate connection between the I of verse 1 and the us and the our of verses 2 through 4. And when I talk about the trust of a suffering servant, as Bible-believing Christians who have read our Old Testaments, what do you think of, or I should say more, more um, uh, practically, who are you thinking of when I say the suffering servant? I'm saying there is radical solidarity with the suffering servant and Christians at large. And this change in language, signals that. Be gracious to us, the psalmist says. Again, as unprofitable servants, merit is not entreated here, but mercy is asked. We don't go to the master saying, Master, be gracious to us because we deserve it. Right? We say, Master, be gracious towards us. We don't deserve your protection. We don't deserve your love. But it's been showered upon us. How much more now in Christ than in the psalmist who wrote this in Psalm 123? How much more should our psalm of praise be articulate pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. And why is he asking for the Lord, for the master to be gracious to him? For we are greatly filled with contempt. Again, this is the fire that is burning in the background of this psalm. Ridicule and scorn for following God. It's the fire that's burning in our culture right now. One theologian said, when you're fed up, look up. I thought that was a pithy way of saying what this psalm is saying. When you're fed up, look up. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Suffering is common. It's a common lot of God's people. And we suffer in more ways than one. We suffer in every sphere that the Lord has placed us. In the family in the church, in the world. Yes, I'm reminded of Acts 14, where the Apostle Paul taught the disciples there, strengthening their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith by saying these words, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It was never communicated that this was an easy path. It was never communicated that being a Christian was the fast track to ease. It was communicated from the very beginning, even from the earliest times, that following God 
is the hard road. It's the narrow road. And that's why few are on it. Practically speaking. Listen to Job 21. If you're able, skip to Job 21 in your Bibles. Job 21. Because the psalmist says something in verse 4, saying, Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease. And again, this is nothing new. The psalmist is just echoing very ancient concepts. Because again, it was very common in the world then, as it's very common in our world today. So if you're able, turn to Job 21. And look at verse 7. Why do the wicked still live? Continue on. Also become very powerful. It's a question to God. Who's the one who raises leaders up and tears them down? It's God. So why are they not only still alive, but they become powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight. Their families grow, their offspring before their eyes. Their families look tremendously blessed, Lord. Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. I don't see you punishing them, Lord. I see you blessing them. His ox mates without fail. Oh, what a thorn that would have been in the side of the culture who depended upon livestock. His cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. This life looks like it's so good for them. They spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who, this is a quote from the ungodly, who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what would we gain if we entreated Him? That entreated language is prayer. What would we gain if we prayed to this God of yours? By the way, it's exactly what the psalmist is doing in this psalm, is praying and entreating to this God who's enthroned in the heavens. But I want you to see that this was nothing new. And it can be perplexing as we look at the world around us and say, why is that? Why is it that the ungodly seem to flourish and the saints seem to tremble? Is not our God sovereign? If you want a startling sermon, I would point you on that point to Jonathan Edwards' sermon entitled, God is often pleased to lavish blessings upon the ones he hates. That is a heavy truth, brothers and sisters. But now that you're in the mood of flipping in your Bibles, flip to Isaiah 53. Because as I was showing us that the suffering servant ultimately is pointing to an individual, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. We all know this psalm very well. In fact, this is the one psalm that um, 
I'm sorry, the, the one passage in Isaiah, the one chapter in Isaiah, which ironically is in some ways hidden from Jews today. There are many secular Jews today or religious Jews today who do not know of Psalm 53. It's not read in the synagogues. It's kept away from them, and I think it's because it is very powerfully showing our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the story of one uh, Jewish uh, believer, follower of Christ, has a very popular ministry. Many listen to him, and he certainly teaches the things of the Lord. And he had labored time and time again with his father in the gospel. His father was an unbelieving Jew, unbelieving in Christ the Lord. And as his father was dying on his deathbed, his father asked for his son to read him from the Torah, the Old Testament. Son, give me the word of God, the word of God that I believe in, not the word of God that you believe in. And his son said, yes, Papa. And he sat at his bedside, so he tells the story, and read this psalm. I'm sorry, read this portion of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And when he got done reading, actually, I think it was before he got done reading, his father stopped him and said, son, stop reading me that New Testament of yours. Because even his father could see Jesus in this psalm. In this portion of Isaiah. So read with me. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. This is the scorn that our Lord filled up on. These words of Psalm 123 are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he filled up on the scorn of the men around him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The, the, those who are prospering in that portion of Job could have said that about Job. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And as we continue through Isaiah 53, you will see a startling picture of Christ and his earthly ministry. But what I want you to see is the suffering servant. That Psalm 123 is speaking of this one. And what I'm saying is, is that we have a radical communion and solidarity with this suffering servant. What he was doing in Isaiah 53 is what was promised in Genesis 3.15. 
that he would crush the head of the serpent with his feet. That is spoken of Jesus, amen? Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And to show you this radical solidarity that we have with Jesus, and you would say, that's him and that's him alone. Paul, in Romans, had the audacity to say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. In some way, we identify with the seed of the woman who is crushing the head of the serpent, who already has at the cross. And yet, there is a suffering that is continuing. This is deep and theological, but I want you to get this, because this has major implications for our suffering. There is a way in which Christ... There is a way in which we are suffering for Christ. He is not suffering in his flesh anymore. He died once and for all to take away our sins. Amen? Amen. But, but we are filling up on his behalf of something that is lacking in his afflictions. Does that sound scandalous? It should. But listen to Paul in Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When we are persecuted for God's sake, Christ so radically identifies with us as his body that it's as if he is suffering with us. As if is the key words. This was what Jesus said to Saul as he was traveling to Damascus to continue persecuting the church. When Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked for these letters to bring back as prisoners those who were following this man named Jesus. That it was happening as he traveled along the way to Damascus, that a bright light shone and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting those who follow me, the church, but a radical solidarity. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. How does your suffering change when you recognize that it's Jesus's suffering on your behalf? Doesn't that make your suffering noble? Doesn't it make your suffering something that has infinite meaning and worth? If you grasp that, even an iota of that, you can recognize how some of the apostles could be whipped and scourged and they would run away singing and rejoicing for suffering on behalf of Christ. The apostle Peter knew this as well. It wasn't just Paul. For you have been called for this purpose, he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not return it. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He was the suffering servant of Psalm 123, waiting patiently for God, him who was enthroned in heaven. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, Isaiah 53, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How do you return to him who is the shepherd and guardian of your souls? Peter says in verse 20 of chapter 2, when you do what is right and suffer, and patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So how do you return? How do you endure suffering? By suffering it patiently. Enduring it. And how do you endure it? By fixing your eyes on Christ and recognizing that your suffering is radically identified with him. Psalm 123, I to you lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of a servant looks to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Brothers and sisters, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. We can only do that with our eyes fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this psalm. Lord, once again, you have fed us from these psalms of ascents. As we recognize, Lord, that as we climb the ladder of each of these songs, we are climbing to the new Jerusalem. And we are worshiping with a myriad of angels in holy array. That is what we're doing in the congregation now. We have worshiped with them and worshiped with your son, Jesus Christ. It is to him that we place our trust. It is to you, O Lord, that we entrust our very lives and we find meaning in our suffering. Let us commit today to receive the suffering that we commit in our lives on a daily basis in a way that is pleasing to you by suffering it patiently, by fixing our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered for us in a way that far surpasses any suffering that we will ever experience. And because of that, we can share in his reward, which is eternal in the heavens, kept for us, unstained, unmarred, and safe. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit. Apply these truths to our hearts. And in Jesus' name we pray and ask and trust.
Amen.